If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Whether you're a long-time listener or have just newly discovered the podcast, if you want to hear more about what's going on behind the scenes, then why not sign up for our brand new History Extra podcast newsletter? It's a fortnightly roundup that I'm putting together, highlighting some of my favourite recent episodes and giving you some tips on where you can read more on the subjects that you hear about. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing from the Spanish-based historian, author and journalist, Giles Tremlett. Giles has recently published a major new history of the International Brigades, who came from across the globe to fight fascism in the Spanish Civil War. BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar spoke to him to find out more. The International Brigades famously saw tens of thousands of volunteers from across the world fighting on behalf of the Republic in the Spanish Civil War. At this point, how unusual was it for international volunteers to join a conflict in a foreign country? Well, at that stage, it was highly unusual for so many volunteers to join a conflict. They've always been volunteers in, in different wars for, for lots of different reasons, whether they're ideological or romantic or, or simply for making money as mercenaries. But this was an entire army, as it was called, 35,000 people from more than 80 of today's countries, uh, all coming together in a in a single army, or rather in six different uh, brigades, and that really was extraordinary at the time. And um, you know, observers at the time found it really difficult to find anything that they could compare this with, and um, and really the only thing they could turn to was the Crusades, and I think that shows just how exceptional it was uh, for the period. So that, that's really interesting then. So why do you think this happened in this conflict then? Why were people drawn to fight in the Spanish Civil War who hadn't been drawn to fight in the various other conflicts of the 20th century? Well, uh, I mean, if we think about the period we're in, in the 20th century, the great ideologies have, have risen up. Um, we have communism on one hand, we have fascism on the other and we have everything in between. In Spain, we also had anarchism as a very, very uh, powerful uh, actor. And so we've really moved from the nationalism of the First World War as a motive for people to, to, to fight uh, to the new realm of ideologies. And ideologies, of course, uh, are often frontierless, and I think in this case, what we saw was um, uh, people from all over the world could see that in Spain, uh, after um, the generals, the reactionary generals, um, eventually led by, um, by Francisco Franco, uh, but supported on the ground by troops and aircraft um, supplied by uh, Hitler and Mussolini, and they could see that in Spain there was actually a frontier or a front uh, in the in the military term against fascism, and uh, and that is where why they decided to go. Now the Spanish Civil War begins in 1936. At what point do the brigades become involved? Well. Um, the brigades themselves aren't formed until October, so that's, what, three or four, four months later. But even before that, in fact, from the very first uh, day, um, uh, foreign volunteers began to um, enlist or simply uh, volunteer uh, for, the, um, uh, for the Republican uh, militias. We have to remember that something extraordinary happened uh, in July 
basically in July of 1936. Basically, it was a military coup, a failed military coup, uh, or rather a partially successful one, uh, which provoked in turn a sort of a counter-revolution on the other side. So we had a democratic government, uh, which is challenged by a bunch of reactionary generals backed initially by Mussolini and then also by by Hitler. And then on the other side, we have the workers' organizations, the anarchists, the communists, the trade unions taking to the streets and taking control. Um, So to begin with, we have all these varied militia units which are set up by the different political parties, by the different trades unions, and a lot of foreign volunteers appear, um, either people who are already in Spain or people who are traveling to Spain uh, or people who travel very quickly to Spain um, to join um, to join those outfits. So there's a sort of pre-international brigades moment of several months. And then we have uh, uh, the Comintern steps in, communist in, the Communist International steps in to help actually structure and organize this. And, uh, and that is when the brigades are formed. And um, so essentially there are sort of mixture of, let's say, a, a popular desire uh, to take on uh, Hitler and Mussolini and Franco as their sort of front man. And, uh, and then the organizational power and the political clout, too, of, uh, of the Communist Party in Spain and internationally. And and on that subject, how how far are the international brigades being directed by the, the main communist power, which is obviously the Soviet Union, led by Joseph Stalin at this point? So they're not really being directed in the sense of being receiving instructions from Moscow on what to do. Essentially, uh, the only uh, interference, if we want to call it that, is actually the decision to set them up. Um, that obviously would have needed uh, approval high up in Moscow, uh, essentially from from Stalin. But once they were set up, and again, it was common turn people who did the work of setting them up, it was then, uh, and it was always designed to be popular front, sorry, a popular front outfit, uh, by which um, I mean a broad uh, left-wing outfit that basically reflected um, the composition of the republic itself. And so um, in the future, about 50% of the brigaders would be communists. But um, their master, if you want, was not Moscow. It was the Republican army. It was the high command of the Republican army. And so the sort of the common denominator is, uh, is anti-fascism, which of course today has a has a has a slightly strange and new um, manifestation on the streets of Seattle, Seattle, and and cities like that. But um, but we're talking about the very first forms of anti-fascism, um, uh, as fascism itself was new and on the rise. And could we talk a little bit, please, about the composition of the international brigades? I know they come from. A wide variety of different countries, but were any sort of particularly heavy contributors to the brigades? Or were, there, were they mainly European? Were there a lot from elsewhere in the world? Okay, so there were. So the international brigades were mainly European. Um, if you actually rank the countries by order of um, contribution in, in numbers, uh, France comes out top, followed by uh, Germany, Italy, and Poland. And then uh, all the other uh, countries in Europe, uh, Britain and Ireland, provide about 2,500 of the 35,000 volunteers. Um, But it then becomes very complex to try and work out who they actually are, because um, a a huge number of those who join the brigades are actually exiles already. So we get, for example, I don't know, 80% of the Poles come from France and Belgium. Many of the Italians do as well. And in fact, many of the sort of political exile communities move en masse uh, to Spain and join the brigades. And then they mix with this other group of, uh, of, um, of 
exiles, but who are econ- economic exiles, in other words, uh, economic migrants, um, Poles who are working in the mines in France, for example, um, Italians as well. And um, so I, I like to call them an army of the devout in the political sense and the displaced in the sense that many of them are actually emigrants already, uh, including those who come from the United States. And then there's a second layer, if you want, of, uh, of volunteers, uh, a large number of whom come from uh, Latin America, but then also a smattering of people from all over the world. So we have uh, volunteers from China, we have volunteers from Vietnam, we have volunteers from India, from what today would be Pakistan, uh, from uh, what was then Abyssinia, Ethiopia, um, etc., etc. So it really is a, a, an extraordinary global army. And in fact, part of the ethos deliberately was that it should be like that. And uh, the brigades themselves were very proud of their huge uh, international and especially their huge racial mix. And what attitudes did the host governments have to the international brigades? Did any of the authorities try to prevent people leaving to fight in Spain? Yes, almost everybody tried to prevent people from leaving to fight in Spain. Um, The unfortunate thing about the Spanish Civil War is that this is actually where uh, appeasement starts. Um, the Western democracies, uh, Britain, France, uh, the United States, uh, Holland, the Nordic countries, uh, they all sign up to a non-intervention pact, uh, which Russia and Germany and Italy also sign up to, which is essentially a sham uh, because um, Mussolini sends 70,000 ground troops, uh, Hitler sends the Condor Legion of the, of the Luftwaffe, um, uh, but the rest of, uh, of the democratic world, shall we say, basically turns a blind eye uh, and then plays uh, to the non-intervention rules which state that, um, that uh, people are not allowed to go Uh, and fight in Spain. And different countries have different ways of enforcing that. Uh, In Britain, it meant that people were checked on the the way out, not really punished when they came back, I must say. But in other countries, uh, like Holland, for example, you could actually have your nationality taken away from you. Now, many of these brigaders, in fact, I guess most of these brigaders came for very idealistic reasons to fight in Spain. Did the reality of what they actually ended up doing match those expectations? So people came with different degrees of ideology. Um, I think one would probably have to separate out uh, sort of three levels. Uh, um, one is the sort of hardcore communists. Uh, another is, the, is what I would call the much softer communists, people who have just sort of joined the Communist Party, don't know very much about it, um, see it as an, still an ideological outfit. Um, as one volunteer I quote says, you know, Stalin was still a saint to us. Um, and then you have uh, the, an even larger group who are simply anti-fascists, is the only common denominator um, and, um, and so they all have slightly different uh, expectations. Yeah, so for many of the, of the volunteers, uh, in fact, Spain was a sort of, uh, or Republican Spain was a sort of socialist paradise uh, when they first got here. And, and Orwell describes this very well in the streets of Barcelona, how everybody uh, has started wearing uh, basically boiler suits as a sort of way of um, uh, erasing class differences. Uh, that women are much freer, that women, in fact, are armed. There are militia women uh, in the streets. And, and many people are inspired by this counter-revolution that's going on. Um, with time, some of them uh, will begin to see that perhaps behind the counter-revolution, things are not so pretty, um, that um, the anarchists, for example, um, carrying out uh, what we might call um, uh, selective assassinations or basically operating death squads. They're killing priests, they're killing the wealthy, they're killing some of the middle class. And um, and the, the communists can be fairly hardcore as well, but actually I have to say much, much uh, better behaved. 
and this mainly in the first few months when the when the government is not is not in control but overall and uh, and this continued throughout the war and it's something that that the veterans took away with them uh, which is why many of them really felt that Spain was the the highlight of their of their lives um it really did feel like a a, a moment of uh, immense equality um, and they felt that they were fighting both in the positive sense for that and very clearly in in the negative sense against something that they saw as a huge danger uh, to the rest of Europe, which was, of course, uh, fascism, and which their own governments, through non-intervention, were basically uh, appeasing. How effective would you say the international brigades were as a military force? Did did they make a material difference to the balance of the conflict? Yes, they, the international brigades definitely made uh, a, a military difference to the balance of the conflict, uh, certainly uh, at the very beginning. We have to remember that um, in the early months of the war, the Republican army was chaotic. It was all these different militia units. Um, and the international brigades, when they were formed, even though they were pushed into battle very quickly without much training, uh, were a much more disciplined force. They were used as shock troops. And so right at the, uh, at the beginning, just in November of 1936, at the beginning, just a month after they'd been formed, there are already uh, two brigades. That's about, let's say, 5,000 volunteers uh, fighting to stop Franco's forces getting into Madrid. Um, uh, they man uh, a zone of uh, that was known as the University City, which is where the principal uh, attack was coming in. And they were about a third of the front there. And that was repelled. And in fact, um, Franco simply didn't take uh, Madrid during the Civil War, or rather not until uh, the, the very, very end under, under very different circumstances. So they were very effective, um, almost unfortunately, in the sense that they were simply thrown in, um, partly as as cannon fodder, as sort of a human barrier um, to the um, to the advancing Francoist troops, and they paid a very high price for it. Um, certainly, to begin with, uh, they learned very quickly, but I think they were at their most uh, effective not their most efficient because they weren't that good at fighting, but in terms of making a difference uh, right at the beginning in November and December of 1936, perhaps into January of 1937, they really were a key part of the Republican army. And how were these international brigaders viewed by their Spanish colleagues, the, the Spanish fighters on the Republic side? Well, the Spanish fighters generally were were rather amazed when the uh, when the foreigners turned up. Um, there was this uh, suspicion to begin with that they were actually Russians. Um, nobody really knew anything about them. They just marched up uh, the Gran Via in Madrid, the principal street uh, in the center of Madrid. Madrid, sort of Oxford Street. Suddenly, there's this this group of blonde-haired uh, foreigners in proper or proper-ish uniforms, looking well-armed, marching in a disciplined fashion. And people started shouting, Viva los Rusos, you know, hail the Russians. And then they slowly discovered, no, these weren't Russians. These were Germans and Italians and British and, uh, and French. And, um, and then for the Republican fighters themselves, to begin with, as they were also learning as they went along, um, they were very impressed by, um, by the discipline of the brigaders. Uh, there was this idea in the Republican army that you basically stopped fighting when night fell and, and you went home, which you could do in Madrid um, because the front was um, very close. So they became uh, a sort of inspiration, and not just in the military sense, also in the morale sense, the, the idea that actually Madrid, to begin with, was not alone. Uh, and then when Franco's forces were stopped, the idea that Franco's forces could be stopped because they hadn't been up till then, they'd swept up um, uh, from the south of Spain with another column coming down from the north, 
And, uh, and then also in the wider sense, the feeling that actually this was a victory against fascism, that fascism itself could be, uh, could be halted. Um, in the long term, um, obviously in Spain that didn't work, but certainly um, they were you know, well viewed to begin with. Um, the, only, uh, the only problem over the long term was that they fell within a very politicized army. They fell within the sphere of the Communist Party and where there were tensions within Spain, within the Spanish government, within the Spanish army between, say, socialists and communists. Um, well, you know, they fell into the Communist Party of that division, which certainly uh, didn't help uh, the Republic. And do we know how the international brigades were viewed by their rebel enemies? Were they treated differently, say, from Spanish soldiers when they were captured? Yes, they were viewed very differently um, from the uh, from the ordinary uh, militiamen and then the soldiers of the of the Republican Army. Uh, they were feared, um, the the uh, and respected by the by the other side. Um, but also used in propaganda terms um, this idea that they were a sort of a, a bunch of Russian Slavs and Huns descending on Spain, fed into this sort of ancient idea in Spain that somehow uh, the East or anything to the East was dangerous. Um, and that goes all the way back to Spain's history um, uh, as a partially Muslim country. And so they took on a sort of almost a mythological um, um, aura on the other side. Um, so, you know, feared and respected and hated at the same time. And one of the results was that if they were captured, they were shot. Um, and it wasn't until later on in the war when there was a chance to exchange prisoners that that, that happened less. But the general rule was, if you're an international brigader, if you were captured, you were immediately shot. Now, this, this kind of takes me on to a subject I wanted to ask about, which is that the Spanish Civil War is known for atrocities, I think particularly on the rebel side, but there were also some on the Republican side as well. Were the international brigades involved in those at all? Well, the international brigades were not involved in the sort of atrocities that we all think about, which are the behind the lines, uh, death squads, uh, the sort of things that the anarchists were up to uh, at the beginning of the um, uh, of the war. Um, though as soon as you know an effective government came into being, that was uh, basically was stopped. Uh, and so, but then the question is, what happened when they were actually fighting? And uh, one of the sort of most tragic uh, thing for some volunteers was that they discovered, especially when they had their first major victory uh, in Quinto, in Aragon, was that they were actually expected uh, uh, to shoot um, uh, officers uh, and uh, even, you know, ranks as low as sergeant and corporal uh, from the other side. Uh, and this was an immense shock uh, to some of the more idealistic um, uh, and perhaps um, uh, innocent brigaders who really thought, you know, this was actually what they were fighting against, this sort of, this sort of behaviour. Um, uh, how much that went on later on, we don't know. Um, possibly not that much because in the end, um, uh, the brigaders became involved in a sort of long, long retreat. Um, but certainly the episode uh, at, at Quinto is, um, is ghastly to read in the memoirs of the brigaders themselves who come away feeling shocked and often ashamed of their, of their own behaviour. Within um, the context of the Spanish Civil War itself, this was nothing. Um, this was perfectly normal behaviour. The other side did it. Um, um, both sides, both sides did it. But I think for the brigaders themselves, given their the fact that they were volunteers, that they were often ideologically driven and often very romantic in their sense 
of what the war was about. Uh, it was a it was a deeply um, disturbing moment for them. And something you mentioned a bit earlier, which would be interesting to talk about a bit more, is the role of women. Were there any women actually within the international brigades, and did any come also to accompany them? So there were women in the international brigades, um, uh, not a huge number, um, basically because although we remember the Spanish Civil War often for the, uh, especially the photographs of Spanish militia women uh, and the fact that uh, militia women fought uh, in the first months of the war um, and then continued to fight in some smaller units run by, say, the anarchists or, or the, um, the POM, which was the, um, uh, the uh, United Workers' Party that Orwell ended up fighting for. In fact, by the time the brigades were formed in October, there'd been a general call for women to step back from the front line. Um, so that meant that when they got to the brigades, they were uh, the positions available to them were basically um, clerical or or as nursing or doctors uh, and nurses. Uh, there's one exception who's very well known in the Lincoln Brigade, one of the Americans, Evelyn uh, Hutchins, um, who drove uh, a truck and an ambulance and uh, went backwards and forwards to the uh, uh, to the front line. Um, so mostly women were um, not on the front. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, that there weren't uh, many of them, um, you know, who were as ideologically uh, devoted uh, uh, to the cause uh, as the men in the front. And in fact, because often they were in the medical units, um, they were more likely to spend uh, the entire war in Spain than people who went to the front and were often got wounded and sent home. Giles, I wonder if we could discuss a couple of very famous authors who found themselves caught up in this story, which is Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell. What does your research reveal about their involvement? Well, they're both uh, fascinating characters who, who, who shaped in many ways through their, through their books, through Homage to Catalonia in, uh, in Orwell's case and for, uh, um, for Whom the Bell Tolls. In, in Hemingway's case, who shaped the sort of the popular uh, Western view or Anglo-Saxon view of the Spanish Civil War. Um, in my book, I actually reveal um, um, a document that's hidden away in an archive in the United States. It's a note written by Hemingway where Hemingway uh, explains how he himself uh, went on a behind-the-lines uh, mission uh, Hemingway was a huge Republican supporter. He'd been apolitical uh, before the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he came to Spain and he was always rather sort of envious of the of the brigaders um, for doing the fighting. I think he felt, you know, that they were more manly than, than he was. Anyway, in this note, he tells uh, Edwin Rolfe, a former brigader and a, and a poet, uh, about a mission that he led behind the lines um, to a town that he doesn't name, where uh, he had been sent, uh, because he knew people there, um, to go and find out whether uh, with a bit of suitable uh, uh, bombing from the air and, uh, and some money, um, they couldn't arrange a, a local uprising that could then be um, taken advantage of. Um, um, Hemingway is very honest about it. He says, well, I came back and said, no, uh, I don't trust them. It'd be throwing money down the drain um, and says, you know, that he was told he was being a defeatist and had done a, and had done a, a, a bad job. Um, but it's fascinating because he also talks about his fear he talks about being scared, and the word actually is pissless, being scared pissless, and, uh, and about how terrible it would be to die in those circumstances. And that, of course, is the story of For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is about uh, an American volunteer who is a guerrilla, uh, who does go behind the lines, who gets stuck there, and by the end of the book is about to die there. So that's fascinating. It's not in any of the Hemingway uh, uh, biographies, um, and so um, uh, it's also, I have to say, not in the International Brigade's archive. So there must be a little question mark 
over whether, you know, Hemingway was uh, bigging himself up. Um, but, you know, it's fascinating and I've run it past a few other people, uh, specialists who say, yes, no, that sounds um, quite, quite feasible. Um, and then George Orwell, of course, has this uh, terrible falling out with, um, uh, with the Republic um, when he's in Catalonia. Um, he comes back from the front. We have to remember he hasn't joined the International Brigade. He's joined uh, the POM, the Unified Marxist Workers Party, which was a sort of Trotskyist party, which, of course, the Orthodox uh, communists hated because Trotsky was Stalin's enemy. And um, there's this sort of internal uh, fight in the Republic in Barcelona in May 1937, where the anarchists and POM, that's Orwell's unit, are basically fighting it out uh, with the rest of the Republican army, including the communists, um, um, which ends up with a victory for, for the government. And Orwell uh, spends several days uh, sitting on a rooftop um, guarding the, uh, the headquarters of the POM. Um, and then writes homage to Catalonia as a sort of evidence uh, of his sort of bitterness towards uh, communism and to and to point out the inherent dangers and correctly in in Stalinist uh, in Stalinist communism where from one day to the next you can go from being a, an ally and a hero to to a traitor and uh, and uh, and a fascist. And uh, amongst the documents I found in the in the uh, International Brigade's archive uh, in Moscow, um, which is part of the Comintern archive and is now very usefully uh, being put online, uh, are documents showing how uh, Orwell is spied on, how Eileen Blair, his wife, is also spied on. Um, she's uh, suspected of, of having an affair with with Orwell's direct commander, a Belgian called George Kopp. And you can actually see um, uh, in these documents how they are being um, uh, watched by um, uh, the military intelligence um, uh, department of the International Brigade. Um, and so... Um, it's further proof, if you want, of what Orwell was saying. On the other hand, what you also see, I think, is how mistaken Orwell was in his analysis of what was going on. Orwell's party and the anarchists basically wanted a revolution immediately and thought this was more important than beating Franco and beating the, beating the fascists, whereas the, the communists were far more uh, uh, disciplined. They weren't looking, actually, for a revolution, they were simply looking uh, at this stage to defeat uh, fascism. So um, all that's in the book as well, including uh, there are some strange graphs that are drawn of all these connections between these uh, supposed spies who include people like uh, Arthur Kersler, uh, Willy Brandt, the future uh, Chancellor of West Germany, a Nobel Prize winner, um, and uh, and many of the uh, many of the writers and other people who were uh, who had come over to support the um, to support the Republic. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The traditional way to, to view the brigades is to say, well, they fought in a war uh, that they lost and that therefore they are losers, they are the defeated. Um, but I think that's a misreading of what the brigaders were actually about. Now, were there any equivalents to the international brigades on the rebel nationalist side? I, I'm not necessarily talking about the troops that were sent in by Germany and Italy, but were there actually any ideological volunteers? There were some ideological volunteers. Uh, specifically, there was a group of, I think, five or 600 Irish uh, volunteers, um, um, which, um, on hearing of the... Um, uh, the atrocities against against Catholics, Catholic priests and nuns um, was formed, went over, you know, presented itself, uh, led by um, uh, O'Duffy, 
um, uh, and presented itself to Franco as a sort of great um, uh, support to him. In fact, um, it was a fairly, uh, I have to say, a fairly useless outfit uh, which had to be sent home. But then across uh, the Spanish Legion, which was on um, which was on Franco's side, there were other groups of volunteers, and there was also uh, a unit of Portuguese who came over the border. Um, but in the sense of volunteers, in the in the proper sense, uh, it was a much smaller number. Let's say about probably two to three thousand uh, at the most. Uh, compared to the 35,000 who came from the brigades. But of course, if we want to add in the full number of foreigners fighting on the other side, then we have to add in um, Franco's Moroccan troops, 80,000, um, uh, the troops that Mussolini sent, another 70, 75,000, and, uh, and, uh, and the Condor Legion that Hitler sent, which at any one time was probably um, around uh, between three and 5,000 on the ground, though they rotated. So again, you know, the numbers, the overall numbers went up. And I, I would suppose that the contribution of foreign fighters on the rebel side actually would be in the end more important than the international brigades. Absolutely. The contribution of foreign fighters is, is huge. The Battle of Guadalajara, which I have to say they lose, uh, uh, mainly against the brigades, is fought almost entirely by Mussolini's Italian troops. Um, the Army of Africa, which was, uh, uh, let's call it the colonial army of Spain, which was the army that Franco led, uh, was hugely important. Without that army, um, uh, the coup that turned into a civil war simply would have failed. And in fact, that army was transported across um, from North Africa into Spain uh, by the Luftwaffe. It was the first, um, the first major airlift of soldiers. And, um, and also they were very, very good. Uh, the Moroccan troops were uh, extremely good. Um, and then uh, Mussolini and Hitler between them provided two-thirds of Franco's air force with aeroplanes and pilots and uh, and came to dominate the skies. So in terms of foreign interference, uh, if you want to look at it that way, um, uh, that worked far more in favour of uh, the Francoist side than the Republican side. Now, coming on to the end of the conflict, uh, when and why did the International Brigade's participation end? So the International Brigade's participation ended uh, uh, in 1938, towards the end of what was uh, the biggest battle in Spain, the Battle of the Ebro. Um, the Battle of the Ebro was an attempt by the Republic to, to push Franco back after he'd uh, managed to uh, split Republican Spain in, in, in two and get all the way um, to, the, um, to the Mediterranean. Um, by that stage, the Republic's hope was simply to hold on until the Second World War started. And uh, the Ebro battle was one that they knew they would never win. It was simply uh, an attempt to, to make the war last longer. Um, and, um, but at the same time, they knew that they could make the war last longer if non-intervention became a reality. And by a reality, I mean uh, basically Hitler and Mussolini pulling out their troops. Uh, by that stage, the brigades themselves had been fighting for two years um, the flow of volunteers had stopped. Uh, the international brigades were actually mainly made up of uh, Spanish troops by that stage. Uh, and so their numbers weren't that great. There were still about 7,000 of them left in the, in the front line. And also the Republican army itself were, had become uh, uh, very good. Other units were easily as good as the international brigades. And so as a sort of grand political gesture, uh, the Spanish Republican government announced that the brigades would leave and they were uh, pulled out of the line uh, and uh, basically sent home. Um, the tragic um, thing for, for some was that they had to fight right up until the last moment. Um, uh, one of the most... Uh, uh, Tragic stories is to do with uh, 
George Green and Nan Green, uh, two uh, two British volunteers. George uh, is fighting in the um, in the British battalion until the last moment. Nan is uh, administ- an administrator in one of the hospitals, and they're you know making plans to go home to go and see their children who they'd left behind. And uh, on the very last minute of the very last day of the very last battle, uh, George Green is killed and uh, Nan Green herself uh, discovers a few hours later that her husband dies. And then rather remarkably, it comes to the conclusion that this death wasn't tragic, that this was that he was such an idealist that he had you know, continued along what she called the right path right until the until the end and that that it was uh, simply a, a glorious death and the right thing to do and and on that point actually how how many casualties did the international brigade suffer over the course of the war so the casualty numbers are quite difficult to work out their own figures show um uh, about 5 5000 a little over 5000 which would give us somewhere over 15%. I take that up to, to 20% uh, dead or 7,000, simply because uh, many people disappeared. So there's a large number of people who simply disappeared. Some of them may have deserted, that's possible. But it most likely is that they were uh, killed, even if they were captured, they were also killed. And uh, and because in the first um in the first months, the records really didn't exist. So there's a cemetery uh, in Madrid, for example, with lots of unmarked graves to brigaders because they simply don't know they don't know who they are. Um, so my estimate is that one in five died. Uh, another one in five uh, was uh, seriously injured, um, and um, and possibly another one in five would have been not so badly injured so so the toll was um was very heavy now on the, on the surface it would appear that with franco's victory the brigades had failed but that's not quite the argument you make in your book is it no not at all i mean the the <coughs> traditional way to to view the brigades is to say well they fought in a war uh, that they lost and that therefore they are losers they are the defeated um, but I think that's a misreading of what the brigaders were actually about. Um, their, their own reading of the Spanish Civil War was that it was simply a fight against global fascism. And, uh, and, and actually, they were doing two things. They were fighting fascism, but they were also trying to win an argument, which was that actually fascism would have to be fought uh, with weapons um, and not just with, with words. Um, and the Second World War proved that they were right in that argument because suddenly everybody was an anti-fascist, but also because they all then, almost all of them, participated in the Second World War, not as the brigades, but individually in their different countries and especially in partisan units and in the French resistance. Well, ultimately, by 1945, they have actually won. They have had a victory uh, over global fascism. That advance has been stopped and the, the sort of, let's say there's a tragic irony, which is that Spain um, doesn't shed the yoke of Francoism uh, for another 30, uh, 30 years until 1975. But in the global sense, they had won. Fascism had been defeated. Uh, they had you know, raised their voices back in 1936, saying this was what had to be done. Uh, some people agreed with them. Uh, Churchill, for example, even though he didn't necessarily feel any political affinity towards them, even back then, um, a young conservative leader called called Ted Heath was a, was actually a big fan of the of the International Brigades and went out and 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 visited them. Um, so in the end, you know, victory victory was theirs again at a very high price because many more of them uh, died during the Second World War, where they played also a remarkable role um, in partisan and resistance units especially. And actually, many of them went on to have very interesting lives post-World War II as well. I wonder if you could tell us about perhaps some of the most important of them. 
Well, indeed, um, I'm, it's almost difficult to know where to start because their, their post-Spanish Civil War careers were so uh, utterly remarkable. But if we start with uh, um, just with the Second World War, we find that uh, in Yugoslavia, for example, all of Tito's partisan armies are led by brigaders, that in Italy, uh, many of the partisan armies are also led by brigaders. Um, there's a wonderful moment when Bernard Cox, who is uh, one of the first British volunteers, uh, who then goes on much later in life to become a classics professor at Yale, uh, is parachuted in behind the lines in, uh, in, in Italy um, to help um, organise the partisans and um, and his Italian isn't very good. He keeps saying words in Spanish, and eventually the partisan leader comes up to him and looks at him and goes, you must have been in Spain. And Knox says, yes. And he says, well, me too. And uh, and then Knox says, you know, after, from that moment onwards, um, you know, everything went very smoothly uh, between them. And then we have in the French resistance, um, two of the key figures, uh, Pierre Georges, uh, known as Colonel Fabien, who now has a metro station um, uh, named after him, is actually uh, uh, the first person uh, to carry out uh, uh, an assassination of a German officer in France, uh, and his unit also carries out the second one. They're actually operating against uh, de Gaulle's instructions, who didn't want any bloodletting at that stage in August 1941. So essentially, uh, they spark um, uh, that uh, uh, step change in the re- in the resistance movement in France. And then uh, at the end of the war, when uh, the Allies are approaching Paris, it's um, Colonel Roll Tanguy, um, who is the head of the French free forces in, uh, uh, in, within Paris. Um, he orders his forces to, to rise and, um, and that basically forces uh, the Allies to, to come into, um, to go into Paris. Again, there's a great irony that the first unit to go in is actually uh, a, a unit of um, small tanks and armoured cars, all of which are driven by Spanish Republicans uh, who had volunteered for the French army. And then um, when um, the Germans um, uh, give up Paris, um, uh, Roald Tangui is there again to actually sign the rendition document. Um, so they play a very, very important part. Uh, another character is uh, um, a brigader called Lampredi, uh, who is one of the three people who take uh, Mussolini out and shoot him. Um, it's uh, Lampredi's Beretta pistol is, the, is used to, to, um, to kill Mussolini at the end of the war. Um, and then we can go, because so many um, brigaders were Jews, we can go into, into the camps, into Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Matthausen. And there again, we find uh, quite a lot of brigaders, especially Jews, uh, have been locked up, but also some just for political reasons. And guess who's organizing the, these resistance cells uh, within the camps, which actually rise against their guards' uh, um, uh, in the hours and days before liberation, and once again, uh, it's the it's the international brigaders, and this is you know what the Americans, for example, discover when they when they get to these camps and find that they've already sort of liberated themselves, or that the guards have run off. That it, the brigaders, in some cases, have uh, have stepped in. So um, so there are many cases where they you know do truly remarkable things um, during uh, during the Second World War. And um, and then after that, we can move into the into the post-war. And what we find there is that they form, uh, especially behind the Iron Curtain, they form a kind of elite, um, which is available, especially uh, a communist elite, which is available to the Russians to set up the new administrations uh, in all the countries behind what would become the Iron Curtain. And so we find uh, prime ministers, um, the first leader of, of East Germany, um, Rao, uh, is a brigader, um, and he is 
put in charge of what is then the Russian-occupied zone of Germany um, uh, before it's actually transformed into a country. But that country will go on and have many, many ministers who are ex-brigaders. It will have many generals who are ex-brigaders. And, and more disturbingly, it will have many security officials who are ex-brigaders, including, I, I have to say, the Stasi, which was founded uh, by, by a brigader, William Sacer, and, uh, and was run for most of its life by another uh, brigader, Michael, who, or Mikle, who is still there uh, at the, when the Berlin Wall comes down. Um, and the same thing happens in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, uh, to a certain degree in Poland, and especially uh, in Yugoslavia, where there are, I think, uh, 29 uh, generals come out of the international brigades. Well, I don't know the exact numbers of, of brigaders who are still alive by then, but there can't have been more than, say, eight, 800 uh, Yugoslavs, or certainly no more than 1,000. Um, so that really is uh, quite remarkable. And even outside um, the Iron Curtain Zone, um, we find them doing remarkable things. And Britain is one of my favourite examples because there in the 1970s, we had these two diametrically opposed characters. On the one hand, Margaret Thatcher's free markets guru, Sir Alfred Sherman. He is an International Brigades veteran. And on the other hand, Jack Jones, the mighty uh, and powerful leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, uh, who in an a, in a opinion poll at one stage is voted the most powerful man in Britain, and they are both um, uh, former brigaders. Um, so remarkable things happened to them afterwards, and it's really um, uh, one of the unknown chapters uh, in, their, in their lives. And how were the brigades viewed after the Spanish Civil War, both internationally and within Spain? So uh, within Spain, um, after the war, they were viewed as, uh, uh, as something ghastly. You have to remember that Franco was in charge um, and that basically, you know, he imposed his view of the world on Spain and on Spaniards as much as he could. He loved to mention the international brigaders in his speeches as proof that he had seen seen off what he considered to be the red menace. Um, uh, and there was a certain satisfaction, I think, to the brigaders themselves, to the veterans, that they were still a sort of thorn in his side um, for decades uh, afterwards. In uh, in. Western in, in the Western world, in Western democracies, um, they were often viewed with suspicion, especially because some of them uh, were, were communists. Um, we get people like Alva Bessie, a Hollywood screenwriter, uh, who is one of the Hollywood Ten, who was sent to jail by HUAC, the House on uh, American Affairs uh, uh, Committee. And, um, and they are watched very carefully by um, by the intelligence services uh, in Britain, in the United States and elsewhere, and sometimes with good reason because uh, some of them actually do end up being Soviet spies. Perhaps the most famous of them all is Morris Cohen, who helps uh, to steal the, uh, um, the blueprints of nuclear weapons from the Los Alamos laboratory in, um, in the United States. Uh, I have to say that, say that while they were um, uh, often persecuted <laughs> in, uh, in the West, they were also persecuted uh, behind the Iron Curtain because eventually um, their time in, in Spain, uh, in the sort of paranoid worldview of Stalinism, uh, became a, a sort of a negative cross, a blot on their, on their copybooks. And when purges and mass trials started happening in, say, Hungary and in Czechoslovakia, some of those same people who had been appointed to senior positions found themselves thrown in jail or simply put up against the wall and, uh, and, and shot. Um, the sort of the tragedy of all this, I think, is that for many uh, brigaders who, uh, many of them either were not communists to begin with, most of them, um, or half of them, and then many of them uh, you know, felt very disillusioned with communism afterwards, but they found uh, themselves sort of 
shoved into this single basket. Um, and uh, Bernard Knox, again, the Yale a classics professor, had an immensely distinguished Second World career. He'd, he'd won the, the Croix de Guerre in, in, in France, and he went to Yale to, to have his interview so that he could do a classics PhD there. And um, they ask him about why he's got so many medals and, you know, why he was sent behind the lines into France. And he says, well, yeah, you know, he was parachuted into France because he'd learned to speak what he called sufficiently pungent French uh, while serving in a brigade, a French-speaking um, brigade battalion in Spain. And at that stage, uh, the professor who's interviewing him says, ah, well, you were a premature anti-fascist. And, uh, and Knox is um, amazed by this expression, the idea that you can be a premature anti-fascist. He says, surely you can never be a premature anti-fascist. It's like being uh, a premature anti-toxin or a premature uh, anti-poison. It's you know, something that, that you have to be. It's never, ever premature. And um, this idea that somehow they were premature anti-fascists, that they were anti-fascists, before uh, anybody should have been, um, uh, in retrospect, I feel is quite uh, remarkable and telling and goes back essentially to the story of appeasement and to their role in that story, which is as the first people really to break against appeasement, not just uh, in the sense of adding their their voices to the debate, but in actually uh, going uh, to fight and sometimes uh, to die uh, in the name of what can only be called uh, anti-fascism. How are the international brigades viewed in Spain nowadays? So today, uh, I mean, Spain is a country that is very uh, divided over its over its past, over its history. Um, uh, many years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Ghosts of Spain, which basically looked at the how that division carries on into in into uh, current Spain, uh, into Spain today, and um, uh, we have to remember that you know Franco uh, was able to. Uh, dominate the narrative, as people would say, um, for almost 40 years. And so we have a country that's still very divided over the Spanish Civil War. And some people still think that, um, and I have to say, uh, uh, an ever-shrinking minority, but still, you know, enough uh, to make it a a point that people will debate over um, about whether Franco wasn't, wasn't right to rise against essentially what was the democracy, um, but was a democracy that at the time was being run by by left-wing parties. And so, um, you know, the international brigades, the debate about them falls into, uh, falls into that. So some people look at them and think, well, you know, this was uh, a bunch of people sent over by Stalin uh, to impose communism on Spain. Um, that's not right, um, uh, but you know the common turn connection is 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 certainly is certainly there. Um, I think the the best way to to sum it up and the way that Spain sort of tried to find some closure on this was um, back in 1997 uh, and 1996 when in Parliament they debated a special law uh, for the international brigaders, which allowed them to take up uh, Spanish nationality. This was an offer that was made to them um, at the time. And so this law was passed actually uh, by a unanimous vote uh, in Parliament, including um, uh, the Spanish right, the democratic right uh, at the time. And and it recognised that they had fought valiantly and that they had fought in the defence of democracy. Um, and uh, I think that's a very good last word on them. Um, uh, that doesn't mean they were all saints. There were 35,000 of them. No army is made up of saints. And certainly some of them made um, you know, political decisions later on or carried out um, uh, uh, 
a sort of Stalinist imposition on on Eastern Europe that you know that we can't ignore. But I think um, the vast majority would have uh, fitted certainly into that description. So there's a there's another sort of darker side to the story, to a story which I think otherwise is probably um, really quite bright in the sense that you know these are people who go to war voluntarily. They go to war with a very um, uh, specific idea of what they're doing, that they are fighting fascism, that this needs to be done. And of course, there are people who are going to be proved right. Five months after um, uh, Franco declares victory, exactly five months, Hitler invades invades Poland. And suddenly, everybody who wasn't an anti-fascist is an anti-fascist. And, um, and so I think, you know, they are proved right at that stage. And like I say, I think the fact that in the end, um, uh, international fascism is defeated is for them ultimately a victory. And it means that their war, which lasted not three years in Spain and not five years in the Second World War, but eight years because it was both things together, uh, that ultimately um, they can claim victory. That was Giles Tremlett. The International Brigade's Fascism, Freedom and the Spanish Civil War is out now published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our Princes in the Tower series. 